0: Dear reader, Melissa in a way opens her memoir, I've always been fuzzy about deadlines, but in May 2017, when I was diagnosed with colon cancer, everything snapped into focus. Oh shoot, I'm going to die. Suddenly thinking about the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything seemed terribly urgent. To be more precise, the project of writing about life and its conundrums seemed terribly urgent because my children are young. When one contemplates the possibility of being entirely absent, a few letters do not seem enough. This is why I began to think about writing a book, a literary form of food storage, a stash of thoughts. In this episode, join me as Melissa Inouye shares her perspectives on lived religion, the purpose of life, and what she's learned from studying global religious studies.
1: Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture.
0: I'm here today with Melissa Wait Singh Inouye to talk about her new book, *Crossings*: A Bald Asian American Latter-day Saint Women's Scholars Ventures Through Life, Death, Cancer, and Motherhood. Not necessarily in that order. Melissa, let's begin by having you tell us a little bit about your educational and personal background because both are integral to this book project. Thank you so much for having
1: me. I grew up in Orange County, California, in an Asian-American family. So my mother's family is Chinese and my father's family is Japanese. I left home and went to college at Harvard University. I took two years off to serve a mission in Taiwan. And after I graduated, I married my husband, Joseph McMullen, who happened to be in the same mission as me, but I always hasten to say we were never in the same area. We just knew each other in the MTC. So for a year, we were at BYU as he finished his final year, and then we went to Boston, and I started a doctoral program at Harvard while he taught middle school. And after two years, uh, he started law school at UCLA, and we moved back to Los Angeles, and I finished my degree out of residence after that. And eventually, we were living in Hong Kong, where my husband was a corporate lawyer, and I was at home with our four kids, botanically nicknamed Bean, Sprout, Leaf, and Shoot. And actually, the shoot was born in Hong Kong. So then corporate law was really hard on family life. I think Hong Kong is a place where people work super hard. And so you combine that with corporate law, and he was just never home. He'd have to leave in the middle of church and so on. So we decided to switch. I went on the job market, and I got a full-time job at the University of Auckland. He stayed with the kids. And we're now still in Auckland. I studied Chinese history, especially the history of Chinese religious movements and popular morality. And I also work in this young but growing subfield called Global Mormon Studies, which is the global study of the religious traditions that originated from Joseph Smith's Revelations. And that includes not only the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but also groups like the Community of Christ and so on.
0: You mentioned that you belong to this new and growing club of Global Mormon Studies. What are some of the challenges with studying Global Mormonism or Latter-day Saintism? There are many challenges.
1: One significant challenge is language. So for example, there are you know over 100 languages used in the church. Scholars can't really understand sources and the experiences that the Latter-day Saints tell in person if we can't understand their language. So then this linguistic fragmentation means that studies tend to skew toward the language that is easier for the most people to work in, which is currently English. And then this leads to a related problem, which is that until recently, most work on the history of the church has focused on the United States experience, on congregations in the U.S., or missionaries from the U.S. who kind of go out into the mission field and um, come home. But recently, more and more scholarship has been trying to tell the story of the Latter day Saints from a more global perspective. And then the final challenge is that Latter day Saints tend to be people who are most interested in Latter day Saints. So that means that we're a little ghettoized. Sometimes we're just talking to each other and nobody cares about us. But more and more work is trying to show the relevance of global Mormon studies for understanding global Christianity more broadly. And that's where we're really trying to take the field.
0: When I was reading your book, I also realized there's a financial component involved that a lot of scholars just can't jump over that hurdle.
1: Yeah, it's very
0: significant. And it's not just about,
1: you know, can people who are trained in the U.S., you know, live live abroad and um, get language training. It's also about opportunity cost of people who, for example, live in the global south. It's a pretty luxurious career, a career that only works in a kind of very wealthy developed society to be someone who specializes in history, right? If you're in Madagascar, if you're in the Philippines, there are probably other jobs that will be a better idea for you than becoming a Mormon studies scholar. So that's also a a tricky thing um, in terms of the capacity of people to do work.
0: As the Latter day Saint Church expands globally, do you see that it's going through any growing pains? Well, sometimes um, people who represent the central institutions
1: of the church who tend to be English-speaking North Americans make cultural mistakes when they travel abroad, and this is inevitable. There's no way that one person can become fluent in over 100 languages and cultures and systems of etiquette in one lifetime. Some things that are harmless or funny in one culture are rude or horrifying in another. So, for example, shortly after I began lecturing at the University of Auckland, I was teaching in a room with this kind of weird seating configuration, so I told the students, let's just sit on the tables. And the students told me that in Maori culture, that's like the worst thing you can do. It's very rude, completely not okay. And and this building that we were in was actually the Maori Studies building, so that was like even worse. These kinds of problems are, are quite real, and, and sometimes we make these kinds of mistakes. Another problem is that when we forget about how global our church is, we develop a kind of misunderstanding about where Zion is, or who's supposed to live there. So for example, sometimes otherwise well-meaning Latter-day Saints can express views that everyone in such and such a country is a you know, criminal or people with a certain skin color are lazy. But this is forgetting that we, the Latter-day Saints, live in most countries of the world. And um, we all have the same values. We watch the same general conference. We read the same holy books. And it can be very painful to hear one's brothers and sisters in the gospel express hatred or contempt for who you are or where you come from or what you look like. That's something that we have to work through and overcome.
0: You wrote an article for the Mormon Studies Review And in this article, you used a metaphor to illustrate a helpful way we can view growth in the worldwide church. Would you like to share that metaphor with us?
1: Sure. The way in which in the past people tended to think about growth in the church was that our roots were in Salt Lake City, or at least in Utah, or definitely in America. And then like a big oak tree, the trunk grew big and strong, and eventually the branches spread out, so they reached all over the place. Uh, But the roots are here in this one place nourished by this particular soil. And that's the kind of oak tree paradigm. But I propose that the church's global growth is more like a banyan tree. And if you've lived in Asia, you know that um, banyans grow up, they grow out, and then they grow down. So like from the outstretched branch, um, you'll see these little roots hanging kind of like armpit hair. And um, the roots grow downward, and they get into the soil, and then they swell and create these thick trunks. So in some areas of forest, actually in in Asia, the forest spread out for miles, and they're all the same tree or the same few trees. And the point is that wherever it is, in order to flourish, the church has to put down deep roots and absorb what's in the local soil that has multiple centers and it has multiple peripheries.
0: The church would do this through their formal and informal institutions. How do you define institutions And what do you see as their function?
1: So, I define institutions as the kind of persistent aspects or structures of congregational life, the well worn ruts through which we trundle our carts. And there are formal institutions like the Relief Society or the Young Women's Organization, and so on. But there are also informal institutions that shape the life of a given church community. And that always depends on where you are and who's in that community. So, for example, in mean, every congregation, I think if we all think about uh, like a, a Latter-day Saint c- congregation with which we're familiar, we know that there are people who are actually institutions, who run the show, who shape the character of the ward in a way that depends on more on their personalities and less on whatever their calling is at a given time. And sometimes the informal and the formal institutions intersect, like when a certain co- person is called to be bishop or Relief Society president and so on. But... My point about institutions is that Latter-day Saint collective life is much more than its formal ecclesiastical structures. Other informal institutions also set boundaries, make exceptions, define what's appropriate, and so on. You
0: say that current church structures have yet to tap into the potential power of integration of the marginal center and the central margins. How does this relate to the church's global expansion? Well,
1: currently we're still quite
0: America centric.
1: And this is changing in very hopeful ways. If you, just if you look at the, for example, the, where most people, the majority of people in our top leadership come from or where they live, um, North American experience, uh, or at least Euro American experience, is very central. And the kind of cultural gravity there is quite significant. So this is a challenge in terms of where the church wants to be, eventually, as a global church. When I say the marginal center, it's because the majority of the members of the church are actually outside North America. And the majority of church members' experience around the world, including in most parts of America, is as a very small minority. In some ways, you could say that Utah and Salt Lake City are kind of the center of the church because... That's where our headquarters are located. And it's in Utah, for example, that our Latter-day Saint culture is, is very um, influential. But in some ways, that situation is an extremely minority situation. Most Latter-day Saints don't live in a place where their culture, religious culture, is extremely influential. Usually, they're a tiny minority. So in that sense, the center itself, um, if, you, if you define that as Utah or the Wasatch Front or something like that, is marginal in a certain way because it's quite different from how most Latter day Saints experience their faith.
0: You use this interesting term, glocalization. <laughs> what does that mean? So, um, glocalization
1: is a kind of phrase that has been coined recently by scholars, and some people hate it, some people like it. But it basically means as the world becomes more globalized, it doesn't become more homogenous, it doesn't lose local character. Actually, globalization is a spur to local differentiation and distinctive development, so it combines global with local. local.
0: To illustrate how the practice of Mormonism or Latter-day Saintism differs globally, you did this study on yearly primary programs, and you looked at three programs held in Asia. What did you learn? So these Three primary
1: programs, it wasn't technically a study. It was more like a kind of reflective essay. Um, But what happened was, in the time between I moved from Hong Kong to New Zealand, um, within about the space of a year, I experienced three different primary programs, and I was struck by the differences between them. So people often make the case that, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is super centralized, very standardized, heavily correlated. Our experience is very homogenized, and as an example of that, you would take you know the presentation uh, that happens in primary, and um, there's a very specific format for that. There's specific lessons that lead up to this primary presentation. There's you know prescribed songs there's, you know, a whole outline on how you're supposed to do the primary presentation. So theoretically, this will be a very rubber stamp, cookie cutter kind of experience. But if you look at these three different primary programs, which were, you know, fresh in my mind because I had experienced them within a close space of time, um you can see there's some pretty significant differences and Who is there to do the program makes a huge difference. And the character of the primary president and the number of children and the scale of the program and the language issues, all of those things make it really different. Both the kind of formal and informal institutions of the church produce things that are quite unique and uh, and lively and local.
0: You mentioned earlier that most people live in areas where they are in a marginal religious position. And also, because of our lay leadership structure, how does that create an environment in which strong local institutions shape the religious experience? Whoever shows up determines the
1: character of a given ward or branch and that character can be very different not just um, from country to country but from unit to unit. For example in New Zealand I, I've started out in a very large ward and then we moved to a very small ward and the changes and the, the difference in those ward cultures was quite significant just by the scale because we have a lay leadership, the character of the official and the unofficial church is drastically shaped by um, individual personalities.
0: I love that phrase, geology. Whoever shows up shapes the character of the congregation. Because I think a lot of us sometimes feel uncomfortable socially and we're tempted not to show up. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that is definitely some good encouragement. Let's change gears now. Let's talk about your book. What's the significance of the title? The significance of the title? Uh, you mean crossings?
1: Well, so the significance of the actual title, not the subtitle, is that um, you know we use this word to describe when people go beyond kind of existing boundaries so for example a cross disciplinary study might integrate history and religious studies and you know maybe some social science if it's really interesting crossings is also a word that we use to talk about going over divides like you cross over a bridge crossings is also a word we use for significant transitions or passages death is a sort of crossing into another place or another state of being so In my life, I feel like I've experienced many of those different kinds of crossings, and I see how crossings are, I think, at the heart of what the gospel calls us to do.
0: In the book, you also mention that crossings is about personal and theological contradictions. How have the tensions made staying in the church worthwhile for you, Melissa?
1: I've never liked video games, because I don't think they're real. It's kind of an artificial environment, no matter how complex they try to make the video game. You just know that it's not real. So what I appreciate about the Latter-day Saint tradition is that it was, it's grounded in real people. It is animated by experiences that people have of God and the Holy Spirit and discipleship of Christ. Because we're real people, we often mess up and make mistakes. If you look at our history, you can see that we've made mistakes in the past, and we know that we will make mistakes in the future. But I think that realness is very compelling. And I think so often in the world, we feel the need to reject organized religion because whenever you get a group of people together, they're bound to mess up. And we can see how organized religious traditions have messed up. And sometimes people want to jettison organized religion and just kind of go with something that's a little more pure in their eyes, something that's less susceptible to corruption, something that's neater or cleaner, less messy. But I think often that the isms that people turn to because they're more specific and focused are often not as real. And I value things that I think are real and rooted in people and in our divine nature.
0: Studying religion is what you do as a full-time job. It's your profession. You mentioned that there are many ways to study religion. For this book, which method did you use? Well, this book is not really a study. This book is just a
1: kind of like a collection of primary sources, actually with a couple of essays thrown in. So there's actual letters, there are lectures that I gave to my students, and then there's some kind of more formal essays that more conventionally talk through a problem.
0: You talk about how you have explored what we mentioned before, these tensions in the church— and you spoke of a piece of advice that your Uncle Charles gave you as you were seriously studying the truth claims of the church for the first time as a young adult. Here's a quote from your Uncle Charles. There are a lot of stories in the world, but the Mormon story is the one I want to be true. To the extent that it is not, I will make it true. What was your uncle trying to help you grasp with
1: that statement? I think he was trying to point out the difference between reality and what was ideal and to show how what we wanted to be ideal was so powerful in shaping our reality and also to suggest, I think, that God is not necessarily with us 24-7 in terms of, you know, we're not like having these nonstop fantastic experiences with the Spirit 24-7. That would just be exhausting and probably impossible. But I think he was saying if we could be patient and keep on working towards truth and working towards Christ and our Heavenly Parents, then we would find them.
0: In these glimpses that you give us into your lived experience and your journey studying the Church and its truth claims, You talk about familiar but unhelpful syllogisms. And then also you get some more useful metaphors as we're exploring the gospel. What have you found helpful and hurtful? I think that sometimes we think about faith
1: and truth the way that you think about, um, the way that a string of really cheap Christmas lights work. Now, I know that Christmas light technology has really evolved and Like, since I've been a kid. But I remember as a kid, we would bring out all of the Christmas decorations. We would put the things on the tree. We'd wrap the lights around. There'd be this big moment. We'd plug in the lights, and then the lights wouldn't go on. My father would say, oh, maybe there's a bulb broken. And if one bulb was broken, then it meant that the whole string didn't work. And I think sometimes when people are just learning about, for example, church history for the first time, they'll find something that seems to them like that's broken something troubling so for example um, as it says in the gospel topics essays joseph smith's concealing of some of his polygamous marriages from his wife emma that can be very devastating the first time you encounter information like that about someone who you thought was you know above reproach sometimes when if you knock out a certain light like the idea that joseph smith was beyond reproach then the whole thing in people's eyes doesn't work and the whole project, um, it just kind of sets off this chain reaction. You know, Joseph Smith wasn't perfect. The Book of Mormon can't be the Word of God, and um, this can't be a church led by God. Therefore, the whole project is bogus. And I think that's an unhelpful metaphor because I don't think that's actually how faith works or how religious traditions work. They're not, you know, a mechanism or a, a machine. Religious traditions are more like, um, I the metaphor I use in the book is like sourdough starter. So it's like this colony of bacteria and yeasts that is not very pure. It's fermented, right? It's like when things are fermenting, they're actually going bad, right? Fermented, a bit stinky. But then when you introduce them to this kind of properly regulated supply of flour and water and a little salt, um, then the sourdough works on this bread like a loving and it makes really awesome bread. Do you like sourdough bread? Some people don't like sourdough bread. I
0: do. I like it. Okay,
1: makes really awesome bread. It's so uh, the point is that, that religious traditions are living things, and they involve multiple organisms, and um, they kind of work in a complementary way. We can't expect them to be pure or perfect, but we can use them for good things.
0: I've seen a syllogism. Work both ways. Yes, right. It does. It goes the other way too. Yeah, it's really interesting. So, if the Book of Mormon's true, then everything Joseph Smith did was divinely inspired, and we shouldn't question it. Or the other way, right? Okay, no, this that's true. is wrong. So then the whole thing falls apart.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and both of those, like, so there's a the positive Christmas light version and a negative Christmas light version, and both of those are fragile because you, you knock out one light and. The whole thing doesn't work.
0: I got rid of that Christmas tree that had lights (laughs) like that. You also use another parable called the parable of the pan, which I found amusing. Uh, Do you want to share that? Yeah. Well, so my cousin was researching
1: cookware because she was getting married. And she said, "Um, have you heard that stainless steel pans contain toxins? And I was like, ooh, I Googled stainless steel toxins. And um, I found this website that said stainless steel pans might seem safe to you, but they're actually containing toxins. And you can just perform this simple test. You boil a tablespoon of baking soda in your pan and see what horrible materials leach out into your thing. So I did this in a little saucepan, which I love. use all the time to make hot chocolate, pasta sauce, heat things up, etc., so I boiled it in the pan, and then I did a kind of comparison test with just dissolving baking soda into hot water. I taste the baking soda in hot water, and it's like salty tasting, but, you know, it's normal. Then I taste the water that's been boiled in the pan with the baking soda, and it's like scraped nails. It's just terrible, terrible taste. Like, I spit it out, and I'm just horrified because, you know, I've been, like, cooking my family's food in this toxic pan, and I, I literally chucked it into the trash. I was like, Pff! You know, there's no way we can use this pan. But then I got suspicious, and so then I um I tested every single pan that we had with this baking soda test, and I laid them out on the floor, and I, I labeled them, like, what material they were made out of, and then our whole family did a taste test. And even now as I'm thinking about this, like, my body is having this yucky feeling. It's like remembering, like, just, it was like, you know, drinking bike chains and... um magnet tea and horseshoe toddy. It was just horrible. And so when we spat it out, we all rinsed our mouths several times, but that horrible taste stayed in our mouths for a long time. And so then I had this conundrum. I was like, so all my pans are toxic? So should we just never cook anymore? Should we just eat all raw food or buy a stone pan or something and... You know, I, I just didn't know what to do. And um, I thought about it some more. I looked at the website again and I noticed that this website sold titanium pans, which unsurprisingly did not react with baking soda when it boiled. I decided we should be able to cook, you know, stir fried vegetables. Like, this is important. Maybe it's, you know, this particular thing causes some things to leach out and. So maybe the test itself is designed to frighten, but recognizing the imperfection and the kind of inherent yuckiness of the pan, I say I we have we have to keep on cooking, and I think religion is that same way. It's man-made, at least to some extent. It's you know people traditions. Nothing is perfect. Everything is a little problematic. Sometimes under certain shockingly commonplace circumstances, a bitter taste can leach out. There are hazards to a religious life. But there's also really good things to it as well, like all the stuff that we cook in pans. I just decided that, for me, the benefits outweighed the hazards.
0: And don't boil baking soda. And don't boil baking soda, yeah. (laughs) So you don't get that chemical reaction. Right. I think you must have some really interesting family home evenings.
1: No, they're just bouncing off the walls, and we never know what they hear
0: and tasting nasty water from oh, pots. That, well, that was very interesting. One stumbling point that some people have is that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints makes some very bold truth claims, and as they start studying other religions, they see the good in those religions, and that makes them question. For your PhD dissertation, you studied the True Jesus Church in China, Can you tell us a little bit about this Christian sect and how your studies helped you see the Latter-day Saint Church in a different light? So the True Jesus Church in
1: China is actually very similar to our church in that it's a restorationist church grounded in a particular country. We were America, they're China. started by a charismatic founder who had a vision and was commanded by God to restore Christ's one true church. So it sounds pretty similar, except for the True Jesus Church was founded in Beijing in 1917 by a person named Wei Enbo, as opposed to, you know, by Joseph Smith in America. It was very interesting to study this church and to uh, explore more broadly global restoration traditions. There are restoration traditions in Africa, for example. Other groups in around the world in the turn of the 20th century were also restorationists like the classical Pentecostal movement. They were also trying to restore the primitive church. We're not the only people to have a founder who has a vision where he's told to restore the one true church. So then as I was doing this research, I, I did think, you know, what makes us different? What makes us true? And what I have come to believe, um, you know, I interviewed mem- many members of the True Jesus Church for my dissertation research, and I found that they are um, kind people who are trying to follow Christ and um, who read the scriptures and pray and worship. I've also studied Buddhism and um, other religious traditions where people worship the divine in different ways and try to access divine power in different ways. I respect all of those. Ways of being in touch with the divine. If you look at the contemporary situation, Latter-day Saints are 0.02% of the world's population. So, like, there's a lot out there that's got to be good in the other 99.98%.
0: And why would the Lord be silent to the rest of the world? Right. But I have found God here.
1: Here is where I have learned to follow Christ. Here is where I feel the spirit. Here is where I've made covenants to my brothers and sisters in the temple. I think this is where God wants me to be, a place that is valid for seeking and finding God.
0: In preparation for interviews, I've been known to academically stalk my interviewees by reading everything they've written in academic journals and to listen to their talks. And I ran across an address she gave before the Mormon Transhumanist Association last year in 2018 that listeners can find on YouTube. Because I was fascinated by your discussion of the true Jesus church in China that you included in the book. So if this interests any of our listeners, I suggest that you go to YouTube. I'll put a link in our show notes because Melissa goes into great detail into some of the things she studied with this um, Christian church. Let's talk about lived religion because that is the focus of your book. What elements shape Latter-day Saint religious life?
1: Um, So in the book I talk about this kind of tension between charisma and organization. I use the analogy of electricity. Charisma is, um, it comes from this understanding of the gifts of the spirit. What is charismatic means um, is something that is touched by the Holy Spirit or by God's power. So for example, Joseph Smith's first vision was charismatic The dedication of the Kirtland Temple, where people you know spoke in tongues and saw angels—that's the kind of charismatic experience. On the other hand, you have organization, um, which we could also say is kind of institutionalization. And um, examples of that are um, the Handbook of Instructions is a kind of tool of organization, and the church's hierarchical structures are tools of organization and chains of authority and so on so charisma is like the power that runs through an electric wire and organization is like the rubber insulation that stops and controls and contains it it's a tricky balance to have both um, but you have to have both if you have too much charisma um, people will get burned things will get out of control um, the movement will break down and splinter into little groups that are following their own respective prophets. Um, if you have too much organization, then you you smother the power of that religious experience and, and kind of choke off the joy that people feel when they feel the Holy Spirit. As Latter-day Saints, we are a highly organized religious tradition, but we're also highly charismatic and a kind of good symbol of that is to look over here where we are at Temple Square. Um, there's the temple, and then there's a church office building. Those are kind of two symbols of those things.
0: You mentioned earlier that those who show up kind of mold local religion. How are members both producers and consumers of religion? Many social
1: scientists depict um, religious practitioners only as consumers of religion, so the religions are like marketplace purveyors, and people decide whose religion religious goods they want to buy. But as we know in the church, we produce religion. you know we turn up and are the bishop or the relief society president or the primary teacher. Um, we teach, we preach from the pulpit we do things together for a religious purpose and sometimes not for a religious purpose, sometimes we just do things together. Part of that is just our lay structure. Part of it is also the way in which religion is not just an ecclesiastical structure or an official institution. Religion is also culture, and we know Latter-day Saints are prodigious producers of culture.
0: You echo a sentiment that um, Phil Barlow has talked about on this podcast before about the importance of growing and evolving and changing, especially as we expand globally. Why is change so important? Change is really important.
1: Sometimes it's a big pain in the neck. But as a problem, it's really the problem that we want to have. Because it's the problem that religious movements get as a endure over time, and expand over space. And if we stop changing, that will mean that we have fizzled, and that will be the end of our religious movement. If you look at church history, you see that we have changed very significantly over time. So since this is something that's natural, let's tackle the challenge with a good will, not freak out, and see where we need to go in this next exciting phase of our life.
0: I think most of us have been quite excited about the changes that we have seen in the church in the last couple of years, especially under President Nelson. You mentioned that change can come from the bottom up as well from the top down. I think some of us are frustrated because we'd like our bottom up help to go a little bit more quickly. As I was reading this in your book, I thought... Nobody takes my advice and suggestions. What did you mean about our ability to make change from the bottom up?
1: So from a strictly ecclesiastical, hierarchical point of view, it is correct that the church is an extremely top-down organization and there don't really exist mechanisms for channels of communication from the bottom up. However... Anyone who studies, for example, human physiology knows that a human body and indeed human health is dependent on much more than the vertical structure of the bones and the skeleton, right? Like, we're not just bones and skeletons. There's a lot going on. There are many vital processes. And the more we know about the human body, the more we realize that the invisible systems of the body, which are not necessarily vertical and structural, but which are nevertheless very well-established and important systems are very important. So, for example, um, you know, microflora. Everyone has these kind of colonies of bacteria that live inside them that play a critical role in our survival, actually. And I suggest that culture is kind of like microflora. So to the extent that we, the Latter-day Saints at the grassroots, change our culture, we significantly change the church the way in which other people experience their faith. I think there's a lot of room for changing our culture, and I think that these kinds of changes are extremely consequential.
0: So maybe you weren't referring so much as changing from the bottom up the formal institutions, but there are small things that we can do with our microflora, as (laughs) you said. And one of those things that you mentioned is to have Tough conversations. Yes, I think so. Very critical to helping us support each other as members of the church. You gave two examples that I want to review. The first one was where you talked about watching the 2008 General Conference with your mother. And you listened to Sister Beck's somewhat controversial address and I'll let you take it from here. Tell us the story of that experience. So, so that was um,
1: President Julie Beck's famous talk, Mothers Who Know. I remember there were visuals. I think there were visuals of kids cleaning windows or something. Um, I was watching this conference talk in my family home, uh, my, my parents' home. My mother was in a chair, and um, she was very weak at that time. She was tired from chemotherapy. It was, I think, that, that year was the last year of her life. She was listening to this talk, and, and as President Begg talked about, you know, how we should be the best homemakers in the world or something like that, I went, and just made this kind of derisive sound. At the end of the talk, my mother looked at me kind of uh, very wearily, because she was tired, and she said, did you have any problem with that talk? I felt so bad because my mother, you know, had been a traditional stay-at-home mother. She had devoted her life to, you know, raising me and my brothers. She had taught me to clean toilets. Uh, She taught me to sweep floors. Those are very important life skills. And I had hurt her with my derisive noise. And actually, when I thought about, you know, President Beck's talk, I didn't disagree that we should teach our kids to work and so on. It was just that, I had approached it from a very partisan point of view. And when I heard her say these various things and not kind of tick these other boxes that I wanted her to tick, I kind of wrote the whole thing off as not being on the right platform, not being on my platform. And that was a big mistake. So I think that you know, increasingly, you know, th- this was 2008, I think increasingly we live in a very partisan world in which we feel like if someone doesn't present the whole package that we approve of, then that person's thoughts or um, contributions are not worthwhile. But that's very impoverishing. That means that, you know, we can't take a lot of good resources in because they're all unacceptable for one reason or another. But I think we can um, overcome that because we are Latter day Saints and we do have some very strong, compelling commonalities, like our temple covenants and our baptismal covenants as a start. And beyond that, you know, our desire to be disciples of Christ and the things we learn in primary and so on.
0: You have a chapter entitled What Anna Said, where you share another experience of engaging in a tough discussion. To me, that seemed like a common scenario, one that's happening more and more often as we function in our callings at church. Tell us a little bit about your story of Anna. Anna
1: is a pseudonym for a little girl in my cousin's ward who, in the middle of a sharing time lesson on priesthood, raised her hand and blurted out, but women don't get the priesthood, and the men are in charge of the women. And um, you know, this is in the middle, middle of sharing time, and my cousin's le- emailed me, and she's like, what would you have said? I didn't know what to say. And I think Anna at the time was 11 or something like that in an age where you go to target and there's all these t-shirts that say girl power or, you know, play soccer like a girl with like a super awesome soccer kicking image. Sometimes women's and girls major experiences of noticing inequality um, in a gendered situation is at church. So this is a problem that we need to address. Now, It's, of course, above my pay grade to pronounce new doctrines for the church or to implement new policies. But as I said before, there are so many things that we can do with the existing institutional policies and logics that we have to make our congregational culture a place where the young people who are the real investigators at church— See that we are a place that values and respects women on par with men. That shouldn't be a edgy goal, right? That should be pretty basic. I think we have a, a little bit of squeamishness about anything involving gender or the word feminism because um, it's been associated with you know in the past with a certain political platform. But this is not the situation today. You know, in a place where Target sells big T-shirts like girl power or girls rock the world or something like that. This is this kind of assumption that men and women are basically um, equally competent and that there should not be discrimination against people because of their gender is quite important. So again, there are so many things we can do in our existing church culture to more explicitly demonstrate what we actually believe. So for example, the Gospel Topics essays talk about Heavenly Mother This is like our secret weapon. This is our key, a a super important um, tool for being relevant in today's world. Why don't we use a secret weapon more? Why is it a secret weapon? It shouldn't be secret. And if you pay attention to President Nelson's uh, April general conference talk, he mentioned the covenant path back to our heavenly parents. So if President Nelson can use the term heavenly parents, I'm sure we can all use the term heavenly parents. Um, And it's just little things like this which kind of maximize the resources that we have to demonstrate the relevance and the spiritual authority of women that are so important.
0: I loved Anna's story because I thought, here is an 11-year-old who's engaging with the doctrine, and she probably just didn't come out with that statement on her own. She's probably discussing this at home with her parents. As leaders, I think we need to be prepared to have those kind of questions asked in church You know, without going, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? Or brushing them aside, because where else is a better place to talk about these things and make it a safe place for people to question? What would you like readers to take away from your not study, but sort of your memoir, your glimpses into your life that you've recorded in your book, Crossings? Um, I hope that people will
1: have a sense that life can be super messy. It can be very hard. It can be full of contradictions. It can still be worthwhile, and it can still be a place where God speaks to us. Contradictions are not necessarily deal-breakers. They can simply be indications that what we're doing is real and worthwhile.
0: Thank you, Melissa, for visiting with me today and coming all the way from New Zealand. That's right. I came just for this podcast. <laughs> well, maybe not, but you did this podcast, too. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Be sure to check out
1: ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way
0: reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.